Hence, First Amendment event, free, uh, uh, State of the First Amendment, 1993-94. I'm Martha Lear of the Penn Freedom to Write Committee, and we're delighted to be co-sponsoring it this year with Penn Faulkner. I think they Washington. can hear you. I think that's Is that so? Different. Are you having trouble hearing me? Either that or they have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear you either, Barney, which is good. <laughs> Uh, I'll speak up. I don't know whether these mics are set properly. Can you hear me now in the back? I think so. Okay. Um, our purpose in these annual First Amendment events is to take the most uh, visible and provocative and difficult First Amendment issues that have arisen in the year past and try to wrestle them to the ground and we do that by a format that will be familiar to those of you who have seen the Fred Friendly Media and Society series on public television several years back, and of course familiar to those of you who are lawyers or law school students because it's a classic means of teaching in law schools. Uh, the moderator presents hypothetical cases based thematically on real cases, and puts the panelists into hypothetical positions and puts the squeeze on them, the purpose being, hopefully, to illuminate the issues for all of us and to send us out into the night thinking about these issues in ways that we haven't before. I'll introduce the panelists in the order they are seated here, proceeding from my right, second from the right, our moderator being at the far end, second from my far right, is Grace Paley, a uh, truly towering figure in the feminist movement and the anti-war movement, and one of my colleagues on the Penn Executive Board. She is the author of collections of stories such as Later the Same Day and Enormous Changes at the Last Minute, and the just published a couple of weeks ago, The Collected Stories. Next to her, is Bruce Fine, a Washington-based lawyer well-known here in Washington, specializing in constitutional, international, and administrative law. He's also a weekly columnist for the Washington Times, a syndicated columnist in Legal Times, and a frequent guest columnist in USA Today. Robert Stone here is an eminent member of both Penn Faulkner and American Penn. He's the author of five novels, including A Hall of Mirrors, which won the Penn Faulkner Award, and Dog Soldiers, which won the National Book Award. His other titles are A Flag for Sunrise, Children of Light, and of course, Outer Bridge Reach. Congressman Barney Frank, is now in his seventh term in the U.S. House of Representatives from Massachusetts, as you surely all know. He chairs a subcommittee of the House Committee on Banking, Finance, and Urban Affairs, and he is also a member of the Judiciary Committee and of the Budget Committee. Professor Stephen Carter is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Law at Yale University. His particular subjects are constitutional law, contracts, and intellectual property. And he's written three books. 
the most recent of which hasn't yet been published. We understand it's inbound galleys now. It's called The Confirmation Mess. And uh, the two prior books, <coughs> The Culture of Disbelief and Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. Leslie Stahl is a co-editor of the CBS News magazine 60 Minutes. Uh, her very first 60 Minutes report attracted a great deal of attention. Many of you, I'm sure, will remember it. It was on the selling of babies in Romania. Before going to 60 Minutes, she was the CBS News White House correspondent covering three presidents. She covered President Carter from 1978 through 80, President Reagan from 81 through 86, and she was the chief White House correspondent at the Bush White House from 1989 to 1991. And Gay Talese, another colleague on the executive board of Penn, is the author most recently of Onto the Sons, and before that, other deeply familiar titles, including Thy Neighbor's Wife, Honor Thy Father, and The Kingdom of Power, a profile of the New York Times, where we both labored back in the 1960s. And finally, our moderator this evening, Nadine Strassen, president of the American Civil Liberties Union, but I would like to stress, in no way here tonight in that capacity. I think it's worth mentioning, obviously, as our moderator, she won't be wearing that hat. Uh, when she was appointed to that post in 1991, she was the youngest person ever to become the president of the ACLU. She's also a professor of law at New York Law School, and she's written and practiced extensively in the areas of constitutional law, civil liberties, and international human rights. Before I turn it over to her, uh, let me mention to you that we'll have a question and answer period afterward, and we will ask you to restrict your questions to questions, and uh, we will then invite you to, to a uh, reception with a with a cash bar in the service bar. And now our moderator, Aiden Strassen. I'm sorry, we forgot to mic me up in advance, so I'm going to have to do this now in front of you. and. Uh, before I go out of role as ACLU president, I might say something about the fact that Martha was imposing a prior restraint on the audience, but uh, I'm going to go out of. Can you hear me now? Great. I just want to make a few introductory remarks. Uh, the language at the bottom of your program quotes the First Amendment free speech clause. And as you know, it says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Uh, many constitutional lawyers are fond of quoting former Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black when he said, no law means no law. In truth, though, neither Black nor anyone else who is often described as a free speech absolutist has really been absolutely <coughs> absolute about free speech. What distinguishes the absolutists from others is just where they draw the line 
how they strike the balance between free speech and countervailing goals, including the goal that we are going to focus on tonight preeminently, namely that of curbing crime and violence. Now, I assume that, but I do not know, that most of our distinguished panelists are probably fairly close toward the absolutist edge of the line. I want to stress I'm not going to ask them to step out of their roles, uh, but I am simply going to push them as hard as I can to draw the difficult lines and to strike the difficult balances. Uh, I also want to say that although we are using the hypothetical format, as Martha stressed, I do want to tell you that uh, some of these scenarios will seem very familiar to you. They are based on, on very well-known situations. Others may seem far-fetched and fantastic, but I want to stress to you that every single one of them is rooted in some actual uh, reality, some ongoing challenge to free speech that we are facing. I did try to concentrate as I put these scenarios together on those that are of greatest interest to writers, since these are writers' organizations that are sponsoring um, the discussion. But I also want to say, and this perhaps is a commentary on the state of free speech, that there was a, an overabundance of actual challenges to free speech to choose from. So with that in mind, uh, let me begin by uh, making the kickoff statement that the moderator whom I am going to try to emulate, namely Mr. Fred Friendly, always said as he kicked off these Socratic dialogues, uh, what we are going to try to do is to make the agony of decision making so intense that you can escape only by thinking. So, <laughs> with that in mind, uh, and I'm sorry, this looks a little bit awkward. I hope it, uh, you, can, you can still hear me when I step away from, oh, that's wonderful. Okay, uh, our first scenario, I'm going to start by uh, posing a question to Ms. Leslie Stahl, uh, because this has to do with a very grisly actual rape case that took place in Illinois a few years ago. And uh, some folks are interested in are approaching you and asking whether you would be willing to do a news show about it. It has not gotten nearly as much national attention uh, as they think it should. I won't go into all the grisly details here, but let me tell you it involved repeated acts of rape and sodomy by a convicted sex offender who was out on work release, you know, one of those programs that former governors such as Michael Dukakis, uh, not to mention Ronald Reagan, also uh, sponsored. Um, and this fellow, um, after he had repeatedly raped the woman, killed her in a very brutal way, beat her up, choked her, and then, it's not over yet, committed acts of um, sexual attack and aggression and even cannibalism on her corpse. All of this he confessed to his girlfriend, and both his girlfriend and he would be uh, willing to cooperate with you in doing a news story about it. Are you interested? Uh, I'm interested. Yes, I'm very, I'm, I'm interested. And, and I'll just tell you that I uh, frankly did a story last season on 60 Minutes um, about a somewhat similar situation. And is there any particular uh, theme that you would like to stress as you deal with this kind of story? Well, I would like to focus on uh, the work release program. Uh, in the case that I actually did, it was a, a 
an early release program because of overcrowding in prison. So that's the aspect that I would be personally most interested in. And how are you going to deal with all of this grisly sex and violence, especially in, a in light of communal concerns about overemphasis of both on television? I know exactly how I'd handle it. I would, uh, because I did. Um, I would interview everybody. I would get in into the can, as we say, on tape, uh, everything that happened. Uh, and we would talk to the perpetrator. Including the necrophilia. Yeah, we'd get it all on the, on, into the can. And then we'd probably use very little of it on the air. Um, because the criterion would be something we call taste. Um, and we would not feel that the story needed to be so graphic to get the point across. So no. we would probably not go into all the details. Um, and I can tell you, I mean, this is not your hypothetical, but you didn't want us to go out of This is not a hypothetical. This is a real case. No, but I, as and I, I want to ask you, Ms. I did Phil, all since you say your emphasis was uh, on the work release program, let's say there wasn't that background, and all it was was the grisly sex and violence. Would you, would you deal with it? It's a very important rape case. Got a lot of attention in the state. Big cause celeb. Well, I personally would not be interested in it unless it had some overarching issue that I thought the public, uh, that I'd want to, to show to the public. I would, for me personally as a reporter, I would have to have that other issue. I would, I would not want to do the rape story just for that. Does anybody else see a public issue in the rape story? You know, there's a difference between the 60 Minutes kind yeah. of report and the hard news story. If yeah. you you want to make me into a daily reporter, well, that's no, I don't want to. Okay. I, in fact, I want to go in exactly the opposite direction. I'm going to. Uh, uh, Ms. Stahl has, in fact, produced the story um, with uh, much of the grisly brutality in the can and uh, not on screen, focusing on issues of uh, prisoners' release programs, but. It's really a phenomenal success. And now, Ms. Paley, uh, you are approached by um, another network that uh, is, wants to compete in the ratings <coughs> games and wants to do a docudrama based on this story. Uh, and they think that with your great credentials as a feminist, as uh, a pacifist, uh, that you would be just the right person to uh, write about this orgy of violence and sex. Are you going to do it? Well, um, on this program that we're now on right this minute, I'd say yes, I would do it. Uh, in real life, I'd think about it a lot. Uh, but I, I want you to think about it. Tell us <laughs> <laughs> what's going on in your mind. What, I'll tell you what. It, you know. Uh, I don't do I don't write docudrama, so so I would have I'd have to think about it in two different ways. I mean, as a, as a writer, I might write it, and I have written things that were very um, harsh in that way. But you have to write it from a certain point of view. I mean, if you write it, uh, I mean, if you if you write it, uh, uh, I mean, you have to, you have to have some honor in it, you know. I mean, if you just do it to show how grisly and disgusting and you know, and everybody will now come and look at this thing and get so keen on it and whatever and whatever. Well, with the serious problems of, of rape in our society, but, uh, can't you but say you that? But you have to think of it, you have to, you have to think of a way to tell that story. 
and you don't really know what, you know, you don't know, you have to find some voice to tell that story. I mean, that's what I would do. I have to find, I would have to find the person to tell the story, not me. I would have to decide whether, whether the story would come from someone in her family or whether the story would come from this uh, guy's family or from his, you know, his grandmother or his, uh, or his kid. You know, or, or whatever. Um, I don't think I think about the cop that found it, or, or else I'd write a mystery story. Okay, I'd just like to ask yeah. the, the other writers on our panel, if you're interested in commenting, Robert Stone or, or Gay Talese, whether there is any um, story along these lines involving sex and violence that you would refuse to write about, and would you use the same kind of criteria that we've heard uh, Ms. Paley? Uh, elucidate. Either one of you want to comment, Mr. Talese? I'm um, currently involved in such a case involving sex and violence and having a very difficult time because the characters, and we writers are always more interested in character than I think in action, mm -hmm. uh, the characters are not that interesting. And I'm talking about Pat the Bobbitt case, mm -hmm. and I've been on this for six months. And um, so as a writer, I am challenged by trying to find what we might call minor characters and a number of them interacting that have nothing to do with the main event, the bedroom scene of June 22, 1993, the severance of John Bobbitt's penis. Um, the, the, the other characters that I've discovered give my story a fullness that the two principals, the husband and wife, John and Lorena Bobbitt, do not have. It would be very difficult for me to write about the sex and violence right. that because there's, not that it's been already overdone. You're, way, you're doing this a, as a novel or as a? Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. I but you're not doing it for, <laughs> <laughs> but you're not doing it for television, I take it. No, I'm not doing it for television. But you have a different approach if you were writing for television than writing for whatever else you're considering. Well, the, a non-televised the, the, the problem would be would be the visuality. Mm -hmm. uh, as a writer, you can be very ex specific, very explicit, mm -hmm. very, very accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, on television, of course, in the movies, it would be very difficult. Uh, as Leslie pointed out, there's that sensibility to the audience or to a part of the audience that would cause you to be a self-censor. <laughs> so you would have more concern about graphic depictions of violence on television than you would about graphic descriptions in, in writing. Uh, a novel or a, a journalistic piece? I think if I was a commercial figure in television and worried about commercials, I would have to be pragmatic and think, well, they're going to... I'm talking just about your own sense of responsibility as a writer. Let's well, my own sense of responsibility as, as a writer, I'm not, I never did think of myself in television terms. And I don't think I could, I could, I could function on that, on that level, if it doesn't sound too patronizing. I don't think I can, uh, uh, I don't know how I would do it. I don't know how anybody can do it. I don't think television even cover the news fully. Uh, to say nothing of that explicit sense of, of people gone berserk. I don't know how. Um, have any of our other writers actually written for television? Uh, Robert Stone, have you? Or I have you never written for television. And for the same reason that Mr. Talese has not? Uh, I, well, I, I, no one ever asked me. <laughs> Guess what? I, I, I'm here with an offer. <laughs> I'm asking whether you would write 
uh, the kind of docudrama, either based, you can, we can have a mixture, you know, perhaps we can put together Lorena Bobbitt and uh, uh, this other character, uh, the rapist from Illinois. Is that the sort of thing you would consider treating for television? If it were put to me, I would consider it. Um, and I think that I would make my decision on the basis of whether or not I could find in all this stuff, which is basically routine, awful stuff that happens all the time, something that uh, could constitute an insight. Because I think the writer's job is really to, to somehow make the world less lonely. And if in all this stuff there's something that I could display as some kind of comprehension that I could share, then I would do it. But otherwise, it's just the same old awful stuff. Okay. Uh, I'd like to give any other panelists, if they feel that uh, objections to these criteria that the writers are using, the opportunity to express that. Uh, if not, I'm going to go on and uh, suggest that one of the interesting facets of this case from Illinois, uh, by the way, I forgot to tell you the name of the, the rapist who has now been convicted. His name is Bundy uh, Shiro, and we can call him BS for short. That's what his initials are. Uh, he's been convicted. He's on death row. And now the case actually, the story presents a very interesting uh, legal issue. And in fact, um, Bundy Shiro has uh, studied a lot while he's in prison. Uh, he's become, among other things, a born-again Christian uh, and come under the sway of a minister who is a prominent uh, anti-pornography activist. Uh, as a result of his studying with the minister and his reading of the Bible, uh, Mr. B.S. realizes that it was all of the pornography that he looked at before he uh, committed this crime that drove him to do the crime. And, and, and not just what you might think of as pornography, but uh, actually all books that have to do with sex and violence, including some that have been written by members of this very distinguished panel. Uh, he's also become a jailhouse lawyer, and he has a theory, but he would like to test it out on a real expert. So I'm going to play uh, Mr. B.S., and I'm going to consult uh, this real distinguished expert, uh, Professor Stephen Carter from, Stale, from Yale Law School. Uh, Professor Carter, um, I'm really pleased that you've accepted my telephone call. I'm surprised that I've accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think maybe the reason that you accepted it is that I've been giving you such good press about your, your last book, Culture of Disbelief, because it, it helped turn me into a model prisoner. Uh, and I've been saying that on talk shows and uh, getting you a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of orders from around the country. But anyway, um, you know, from what I've read, that uh, under the law of Illinois, along with other states, uh, if I commit a crime because of diminished mental capacity, uh, you know, say I was on drugs or on alcohol or something, that that can reduce my culpability. Uh, or it could be a mitigating factor and I can get a lesser sentence. Now, I've realized as a result of my religious conversion in prison, which of course was triggered at first by reading your book, and I want to thank you again for that. Um, I've realized that it, it was pornography that made me do it. Can I, can I make this argument in, to get my sentence reduced, or at least to not be, to get myself off death row? 
Well, you could make the argument. Uh, I think there are some problems uh, with the argument. Uh, in the first place, uh, the fact that, even if it is a fact, that uh, it was exposure to pornography that led you to do a terrible crime doesn't mean you didn't do the terrible crime. And so I'm not sure why that's going to uh, get you off death row. I have a lot of respect for your religious conversion. I think it's a fine thing. I'm, I think it's excellent. I, uh, and I hope that allows you to face your fate with equanimity. <laughs> But beyond that, you know, there's, I, I, there's not much that hope that I can offer. You don't think that, uh, so you're saying that uh, the judge will give more weight to alcohol than to all those dirty books. Because, you know, if I, if I could told the judge that I was drinking and that's what drove me to commit this heinous crime, that would be a mitigating circumstance. Well, it could be a mitigating circumstance, that's true. Uh, I guess you want to distinguish two things. Yes, it is true that sometimes if you, can, if you show that you were drunk or under the influence of alcohol at the time you committed a terrible crime, uh, that will be taken into account. I have to tell you, since you're consulting me, I don't happen to call, I personally wouldn't take that into account if I were a judge uh, in, uh, as a defense. But you raise an important question. The important question is uh, when you are about to be sent to whatever form of, of death penalty they have in Illinois, I believe they have lethal injection, uh, when you're about to face that uh, fate, does it have to be as the result of something that you did in full possession of all of your faculties or not? Whether it does or not, I think the argument that uh, exposure to pornography meant you were not in full possession of your faculties is not a very strong argument. Well, I thank you very much for your opinion. I'm going to seek a second opinion. Yeah, I talked to, talk to Mr. Fine. I'm sure he has a different view. Mr. Fine, uh, you accept my telephone call. Well, it seems to me, rather than reading uh, Mr. Carter, you may have been reading Sam Johnson's The Knowledge That a Man Will Be Hung in a Fortnight Concentrates the Mind Wonderfully. It seems to have been very prescient with regard to your situation. Well, I did have this, this epiphany, but... Uh, you don't think that it's something that I can use and, and that the judge should take into account to lessen my culpability and my criminal responsibility? Well, the Supreme Court has instructed all of the judges uh, to permit any defendant who's accused of a capital crime to submit for jury or judge consideration any element of his life or his character that the defendant thinks is mitigated. So certainly you have a clear entitlement to make that offer, and indeed, perhaps strategically, it would be useful to do so because the judge uh, may make an error in trying to exclude it because he thinks it's perhaps frivolous, and therefore you could tie up your execution for so many years that the ACLU is expert at uh, exploiting, so that uh, <laughs> you may be around for a lot longer than through summary process. I think it would be up to the jury and the, or the judge to consider whether or not it's reasonable to conclude that simple exposure to pornography, especially since it's so widespread these days, even uh, children at uh, very precocious ages are exposed to things that I, I would think verge on uh, pornography over the television frequently, that that is indeed a plausible reason that would explain such vicious conduct and action. So you it's think that I should be able to pose that to the judge, and if you were the judge, you might be willing to take that into account? The judge would have to consider it, not to necessarily accept it. I'm saying, I think today, 
the likelihood of acceptance would be exceptionally remote. Uh, indeed, the society itself perhaps has become jaded with pornography because it's so widespread, and it just would seem to be so implausible that that kind of exposure would cause the kind of crime for which you are convicted, given the fact that so many others exposed to identical information find little difficulty in restraining themselves from well, such barbarian tactics. Very, that you, you don't sound very sympathetic lose. either. Uh, well. The Congress is, however, very concerned about the effects of uh, pornography, and many members of Congress seem to believe that it does drive people to commit crimes. Um, and they are considering a bill called SAVE, uh, a law to compensate victims of sexual and violent expression. Uh, since it was uh, inspired by the BS case. Some people know it as the BS bill, but its supporters call it the SAVE bill, uh, sexual and violent expression. And basically what it would do would be to allow people who are victims of sex crimes to try to show that they have, that those sex crimes were motivated by exposure to violent sexual expression. And if they can make that showing to con uh, collect damages from anybody who created or distributed that sexually violent expression. Could I interject, since I participated in part in helping the language on the Senate side, it, is not, it was not a strict liability statute. There would have to be a showing by the plaintiff that the defendant had reasonable grounds to believe that the distribution of the material would provoke a violent crime. And in that, if that, if that reasonable, if that, if that negligence cannot be proven, there isn't any liability. And in that form, do you support it, Mr. Fine? Yes, it seems to me it's the same kind of theory that we accept, for instance, in landlord-tenant relations. If a landlord had reasonable cause to believe that not having secure locks would invite um, a criminal come in and perhaps rape a tenant, the landlords are liable all the time. A gun seller who has reasonable cause to believe that if he makes a sale to a particular patron, that patron will use it to injure someone else, that seller is liable. And it doesn't seem to me there's sound, grave, sound reason for distinguishing someone who's in the business of selling pornography from the gun seller or the landlord. Okay, thank you. You've been uh, paying a, a lobbying visit to Congressman Frank. He's just heard that uh, statement from you, and you can uh, uh, engage in a colloquy. Uh, do you? Well, actually, I, I think we may leave the rest of the evening to Mr. Frank, because it seems to me he has ably debated both sides of the question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> previously, he said that he would reject the plea from someone who was charged with a crime that pornography had influenced him because there was so much pornography in the country and so few people committed the crime, it was a pretty hard argument uh, to make. I bought that part, that's what I agree with. To go from there to saying, however, therefore, we will in a civil case let you win the lawsuit, I think it's uh, a grave mistake. Uh, in the first place, of course, it would be easier to win the civil lawsuit than uh, in a criminal case in some cases, and uh, I think that's a terrible idea to have. In the first place, uh, I think it makes the mistake of diminishing the responsibility of the perpetrators. I think the conservatives should be profoundly opposed to that. The notion that you allow people who have done terrible things to other people to say, the book made me do it, the movie made me do it, I can't help it, I heard somebody talking about it, 
I think is a terrible uh, doctrine for abdicating personal Well, I agree, I agree, Congressman, but that's not what the bill does. The bill does not exonerate the criminal simply because there's a party that's also held I didn't say it exonerated. Violence. I said it diminished their sense of the responsibility. But I, it I doesn't diminish any sense of yes, responsibility under the law at all. Oh, of course it does. It diminishes it in the sense that you then would give that, in, because you have now accepted in the civil context the causal relationship that you have tried to deny in the criminal. And to think that you can forever maintain that duality, I think, is a mistake. If the society legislates that there is causality, no, that we will, if you, you are saying that we should legislate that there might in some cases be causality. You're going to let a victim of a sex crime sue someone who was never anywhere near that victim because of a book or a movie. You are then accepting the theory of causality, which the perpetrator is free to use in other situations, and I would think would cite the fact that, hey, the Senate of the United States and the House of Representatives, they agree that in some cases, a book can be partly responsible for my actions. It's saying that, that it might be if there's evidence there, Barney. It's the same way in which I indicated with regard to the claim that BS would make that uh, exposure to pornography was a mitigating factor in the capital offense, that the claim can be submitted. Well, I would just call you, it oh, doesn't mean it has to be accepted. That's different. It That's different. Oh, no, come on, but you're waffling. And look, you are accepting it. We all know it can be submitted. That's lawyers' talk. Of course, anything can be submitted. The point, however, is that you are saying that you think it should be rejected in the first case, but in the second case, you're allowing that theory of causality. And I would say I would reject the bill. No, the notion, uh, in the first place, it can't be limited to pornography. People write books about a lot of things. And if we are going to accept as a society the theory that people who write or people who make movies or people who... Uh, do television, and I would abolish docudramas, but on aesthetic grounds. And <laughs> I, think that is, I think it is an outrageous notion that people should be watching something and it's half true and half uh, untrue, and that just garbles people's minds. But uh, people have a right to, to do that stuff. Well, but Mr. Fine, let me ask you: um, Would you support this same notion of uh, giving somebody a chance to show causality with respect to subjects other than pornography? Of course not, because the, because the value of the speech varies depending upon its content. How about just plain violence without sex, or just plain sex without violence, for that matter? You'd have to examine the, 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 uh, the context in which the authorship occurred. There's nothing necessarily bad about violence can be portrayed in a way that seeks to cast a disgust of the vi violence, or of the sex as well. And you can't make a categorical, categorical statement simply on the basis of the subject matter. Pornography has a very specific meaning in the problem there, though. law, and it has very uh, little, if any, uh, free speech, I think, value. And therefore, there is a reason for singling out pornography that you wouldn't single out uh, Face the Nation or 60 Minutes or ACLU political speeches for to say, well, someone uh, was precipitated into crime. Or the Washington so Times, as long well, as I, I, an example. I, uh, Mr. Carter needs to make a, Professor Carter, please. Well, I, I think that, that there's a, a problem uh, here. Uh, namely, I, I think that, that Congressman Frank is certainly correct that it's difficult to see how to limit this uh, idea to pornography alone. And while Mr. Fine has correctly said that the Supreme Court has tried to explain to us how pornography is different from other forms of speech, or perhaps even is not speech, the definitions are so slippery uh, that it is quite difficult, I think, for the writer to be on notice. But even if it were easy for the writer to be on notice, I at least am not comfortable as a constitutional scholar, as a citizen, with the idea 
of the government sifting through the value of the speech that I'm going to make to balance that against the harm that the speech might cause. It is true, realistically, that sometimes we do that. But we always try to avoid saying we're doing that, and avoiding saying it, I think, is important, because if you start saying you're doing that, I think you do have, at the risk of using cliche, a terribly chilling effect on people who might want to say or talk about or even advocate controversial things. Okay, uh, Congressman. Well, he, he is exactly right. I, he said it very well. And not only that, the real danger is that if you do it under Mr. Fine's law, presumably it's decided not even by some uh, overall governmental process, but by a jury, case by case. So okay. if you happen to get the wrong jury, I mean, it would be divided. It would apparently be a matter for a civil jury to decide. And so civil juries all over the country would then be valuing what you wrote. And if you wrote, you would write contemplating the notion that civil juries anywhere in America might decide to hold you liable. Uh, and, and, and it, it seems that's to that's me that's it's that's a terrible burden. I, I, I'm that, gonna have, I think you're wasting your breath. I don't think you're going to get his vote. So uh, let's move on to... He's already uh, enacted my law, however. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that. Uh, I, I want to move on to some other um, areas where Congress is considering uh, a number of pieces of legislation. And I'd actually like to, to pick up with you, Professor Carter, because uh, you were saying that uh, you think it's inappropriate for government to make decisions about... I think it's dangerous. Rel ...relative... Um, uh, value of certain speech. What about measures to limit violence on television? Are you, does your generalization apply to those as well, given the pervasiveness of television and the great concern on the part of the public that uh, violent images are leading our children toward lives of violence? I think that the content of television is uh, often inexcusable, but the notion of government regulation of it, quite apart from the threat to free speech values, uh, diminishes responsibility in another way. I mean, my wife and I have a very simple rule. Our children don't watch television. I mean, that, and that takes care of that problem. Uh, if you follow that rule, then you don't have to worry What do you uh, think about, about that, it. Ms. Stahl? Is that the way to bring up kids? <laughs> they watch 60 Minutes sometimes. <laughs> I can only speak as a as a parent on this one. Uh, I don't. I, I. I. It would be very difficult for me to tell my child that she didn't have the freedom to watch television like all the other kids. Um, the the whole notion uh, of of coming in and trying to curb us from our freedom to express ourselves. Uh, just rubs me personally the wrong way. And I think if you rely on public pressure, which is what's happening right now, you're going to see us, uh, you're going to see the news operations and the entertainment divisions slowly, I'm sure, and, and it will be very slow. But I do think that they are curbing themselves and will continue um, because of public opinion. Well, let me give you one specific example because we're talking in rather uh, grand generalizations here. Uh, one of the measures that's being considered would simply require a warning to be put on any program that is violent. Um, it would be a warning so that parents uh, uh, such as yourself, uh, who do allow children to watch TV, unlike other authoritarian parents who uh, <laughs> restrict their children's viewing, uh, would have information as to whether the program is, is violent or not. Um, how can this be inconsistent with free speech? Isn't this simply empowering parents and providing information? 
Well, I, I wouldn't like to see the, the, the dam crack by having it legislated. Um, I think it doesn't sound like a bad idea to me, but I think it should be left up to the individual uh, television outlets to make that decision. And uh, there's nothing wrong with bringing pressure upon them, public pressure, but I, but I don't think that it would be wise to open the gate and start legislating the kinds of things that can be said and shown. Well, this is, again, let's not uh, leave the reality, which is uh, nobody is saying it can't be shown, just that you have to but honestly disclose what is being shown. Isn't this sort of like truth in packaging? But you're opening the, the gate and mandating the kinds of things that we have to put on the screen and what we have to say on the screen. Um, and I think if it's, if it's something that is well, what about publicized that, that pressure will be brought to bear in the normal way that, that our society works? Well, Ms. Stahl, we're talking about the normal way our society works. That kind of information is provided to parents with respect to movies, for example. In fact, it's but much more detailed. they did it of their own free will. The, the industry decided it on their own. What about okay. cigarette packages? What? Cigarette packages. Who writes the warnings on cigarette packages? Government? Well, but I didn't see the right to smoke in the First Amendment. So. <laughs> yeah, isn't, isn't, isn't the question it here... full information to the purchaser. Yeah, well, isn't, isn't the question here in part whether... Not commercial speech. You can burn a flag, but not a cigarette. Right. <laughs> isn't, isn't the question here in part whether speech, whether we think of it as the freedom to write or to broadcast what one likes on television, is that just like every other good? Or is it different? Uh, Mr. Fine's several examples, and they're good examples, are about other sorts of goods or services that we regulate. And part of the question is, should we treat the market for speech the same way we treat the other markets and, and regulate them? We think there are problems in the market. My view is that the First Amendment's free speech clause represents a judgment that speech is qualitatively different from goods of other kinds. But that is a view that is under assault. That is, that is not a view that everybody shares, and some surveys say it's not a view that most people share, but I do think one has to make that judgment because Mr. Fine is absolutely correct that we regulate a lot of things for the public good, and there is this question of are, aren't there perhaps some categories of speech that we should regulate for the uh, public good? I might say no, but that requires one to argue that speech is different and say why that is so. I would like to address or amplify on the, the points been made by what I consider my opposition that it's very dangerous for the government to ever get in the business of choosing uh, among speech based upon content. Well, it does that all of the time. The Supreme Court has distinguished between commercial speech and political or public speech for decades. The Supreme Court distinguishes in libel law between speech that addresses matters of public interest or private interest. The Supreme Court distinguishes when it regulates when government can discharge a public employee for things that have been said between matters of private concern or public concern. The idea that this is somehow a novelty in the law that creates a great danger, I think, is discredited by the experience. We've had all of these distinctions made for generations, and okay, yet free speech you, is Mr. very vital. I want to get back to a point Ms. Stoll made when she said that the uh, the information that is provided with respect to rating films uh, is acceptable because that was done voluntarily by the industry. Uh, as a result of a great deal of public and uh, congressional concern, 
uh, contrary to the t general tenor of folks up here, uh, there is a great deal of concern about violence in the media, uh, not just television, but all kinds of expression. Uh, as a result of this, there, it looks as if the SAVE bill uh, may be hurtling through Congress, and a number of writers and uh, publishing uh, trade associations get very concerned, and they decide that they ought to seriously consider adopting some kind of rating system, uh, similar to not the, not the film uh, system, this is even more innocuous than that, because as you know, with film ratings, with an X rating, below a certain age, a child can't even get into the movie. Uh, with an R rating, it's only with parental permission. Uh, no, the uh, trade associations in the publishing industry are considering something more analogous to what's been done within the, in the recording industry, namely that there will simply be a label that says parental advisory explicit material. Um, Ms. Paley uh, and Mr. Stone and Mr. Talese, you are a committee of PEN members that are getting together to discuss uh, what position PEN should take in, uh, in supporting or not supporting the idea of a publishing industry labeling system. Not us. <laughs> No, we would not. We're uh, not going to cooperate. We wouldn't and cooperate. That's insanity. <laughs> that's insanity. We're not going to cooperate with that. And you don't, the, the fear of this uh, save legislation going through, you know, it's going to go through. If you don't do something yourselves the way the film industry did or the way the TV industry did, then you may get Congress to pass this legislation. And all of you folks, you know, are going to be before those juries that Congressman Frank has been talking oh. about. I think we'd do so very proudly. I think we would be almost honored to be on the outs with, with Congress. We always we, we recognize we recognize those of us who are writers or those of us who just are citizens with concern that always in the interest of, of doing something <clears throat> positive for society or something good, <clears throat> excuse me, or for our health, uh, the the government or those who espouse con correction uh, take something away from us. Always in the interest of virtue, we lose options. So I think it is more uh, important to us that we maintain the options as not only as writers but as people in a free society. But again, let's not exaggerate. We're not <clears throat> talking about prohibiting anybody from writing anything, prohibiting anybody from publishing anything, prohibiting anybody from reading anything. We're just trying to help <clears throat> overworked parents <clears throat> such as Professor Carter who doesn't allow his kids to watch TV so they're relegated to reading books. He can't screen, <laughs> he can't screen them all in advance so you know he needs a little bit of, of guidance. Wouldn't that help you, Professor Carter, in, in about Evaluating whether you want your kids to read a certain—do you screen Ab their books too? Absolutely, it would help. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's individual choice. You see, it, it would be—I think what we what we object to would be a governmental body. And this isn't the, governmental. This the is the publishing even if, even if industry. Even if it's a, an ecclesiastical body, even if it's. A, <laughs> well, You'd be better off with us than with them. I don't want to get. <laughs> but the, the application would be simply that every. <laughs> The practical, you know, what we're not considering in a way is the practical application of, of, uh, of laws like this. I mean, you can, we can see. We're not talking about a law. I want to emphasize. We're put our own information on. So each publisher would put it on. We're not talking about the government here. 
Yeah, but what are you, why you, if, you're talk, if, you're, if you're talking about um, television, that's one thing. If you're talking about books, it's another. Why? Because books are something people read by themselves. They can read, they, um, a lot children of people watch TV. Children, children read books. Um, uh, grown children up watch books. TV. There have always been, there have always been children's books, you know, that the library has always well, been children's, children's books. TV show. And we've always been very pleased when our children read grown ups' books, so that, that, that was okay. Uh, I think it's, a, I think. My it's parents very, weren't, but. <laughs> no, I think it's a very different thing, in the, just, just in the sense that um, that the the uh, the I mean having I don't look having looked at television lately really uh, 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 and not, not at the, just at the general programs which all night long are full of people shooting each other I I, I can't believe uh, I really can't believe that that doesn't have a, a kind of an awful effect on. Um, on um, on kids, uh, I I you I mean we can say all we want about it, but I don't believe that it doesn't isn't a terrible thing for youngsters who even have guns available. I mean, so that the whole society, from top to bottom, from being uh, from being uh, the biggest arms trader in the world, down to the kid on the block, it has guns running back and forth. But so I I, I understand yeah. you, Ms. Paley. It, it, you're right. On the other hand, you're no. Saying, you're saying that yeah, television I'm, I'm saying it's more different influence things. on yeah. children than books have on yeah, children. Uh, well, I'm afraid television so. Television is a more powerful medium than Yeah, so I think it's an extremely powerful medium. I think it's, uh, it is more, it is, it is, in this, in this particular way, it could be the most marvelous medium in the world for you know, in, in so its influence on kids. So you're saying that a, a crummy TV show. I'm not saying a crummy TV, I'm not saying a crummy TV show. I'm saying a night full of people shooting each other uh, is quite different from taking a book and sitting down and reading something Even by book or, or by anyone in which there is violence. I mean, I'm, I'm totally on a, I, I'm, I'm not opposed to writing uh, about about violence, I'm not I'm not I'm not opposed to any of us thinking about it or or gay writing about what he's writing. I've written stories about terrible violence. That's not the thing. The thing is something visual. This thing is this business of of of, uh, of nobody moving an inch without shooting somebody, without 15 people shooting. So ultimately, us. as I understand, so I'm, it, saying, I'm saying that visual images I'm are saying, more powerful than words to influence people. Yeah, they are. I, I'm. I'm a, I, 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 Do you believe that as a writer, Mr. Oh, Stone? Yes, uh, sure. I mean, I. I uh, we don't there's like. No I don't question, like it that no my friends, the artists, you know, have more effect. But what we do? But there's, a, there's <laughs> an area, you know, there's an area that shouldn't be lost sight of that I think is very difficult for the law to address, and that is the fact that something that's explicitly violent, whether it's a film or a book, or I suppose even television, uh, is it, it works. It justifies itself if it's good enough. And it doesn't justify itself if it isn't. And it's as simple as that. And how do you legislate that? I mean, what's valid, what's authentic, justifies the degree of violence in it. And what is meretricious does not justify it. And that's, that, that's a moral law, and it's a true thing. I'd but like to ask Congressman uh, Frank, following up on, on these um, comments, uh, do you support any of the legislation pending in Congress to regulate television? We understand from what you've said that you wouldn't if we were talking Only one piece, about. and that's the one that literally physically regulates televisions. I think uh, I'm ready to vote for equipment that would allow it.
parent to program the set to the extent that that's technologically feasible so that a parent who wants to restrict the viewing can do it when the parent isn't there. But I would have no content-based regulation. I'm not for the warnings. Um, and I think, let me, let me suggest one other profound problem with this. One of the problems is that we are misanalyzing, it seems to me, the major cause of the violence. Uh, a lot of right. people watch the violence. Only a very small percentage of them act it out. And it's the social pathology that we've allowed to exist in this country, in my judgment, that is the problem, that predisposes some people to emulate the violence and deprives them of the kind of social support and other kinds of structures that would inhibit the violence. So uh, I think that the, the part of the problem is that we take the easy way out when we think people, you know, I, I, I and my friends watched a lot of violent movies uh, when we were, uh, were growing up. My judgment, by the way, kids in most situations are more likely to emulate violence, which is real. My guess is that hockey fights, uh, two actual human beings in real live time punching each other uh, has more of an influence on making kids negative than supersonic people destroying each other with ray guns. But um, in any case, uh, for a lot of the reasons we said here, no, I don't, I don't want the government making content-based decisions. I don't want to have to decide what justifies it and what doesn't justify it. And I'll tell you, by the way, what justifies it to me is somebody wants to watch it or read it. If some human being enjoys it, that's justification. Um, and I, I don't want to get beyond that as a, as a legislator. Uh, most people, most of the time, do things that I think are stupid. But that's their right, uh, and I wouldn't try to stop them. Uh, and I also do think, though, in addition to the, to the information to you, problem, however, uh, <laughs> we are misdirecting our analysis of violence, and that, I think, is a grave error. Yeah. No, I, 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 um, I really, I, I, after all I've said, I agree, I agree with him on that, um, that, that, that there's more, much more to it, and that it is a violent, totally violent society. That, uh, Okay, I want to move on now because uh, if there's anything that is equally controversial and suspect in the mind of the public and, and many legislators with uh, violence, it's sex. And I want to move to a scenario now that is going to uh, present some uh, uh, dangers that are presented by uh, sexually explicit speech. Here, our central character is a young man named Wellington Red. Uh, well, for short, so we can call him Well Red, and I'd like uh, Mr. Talese. Can we censor the names control. of these people? <laughs> I've got a limited memory here. Um, when we meet you, Mr. Well Red, you are a, an undergraduate student at a fine college in the Midwest, uh, and you are a patron of the campus bookstore. Uh, you've got very eclectic tastes, and among other things, you go to this campus bookstore every month to pick up uh, the latest copy of one of your favorite so-called men's magazines, uh, Workman Magazine, now which has pictures of, you know, erotic pictures of women and fine articles. In fact, some of the writers on this panel have uh, written articles for this magazine. Uh, the problem is that there is a group of uh, women on campus who are led by a very charismatic professor named uh, Bunny McDworkin who oppose uh, this magazine because they believe that it's demeaning and degrading to women and perpe perpetrates images that will uh, lead to violence and discrimination against women. And so they decide to uh, ask the campus bookstore uh, owner, manager, who is Mr. Stone, uh, to get rid of Workman magazine. Uh, so first of all, uh, 
Mr. Wellred, you have an opportunity to persuade uh, Mr. Stone how he should respond to this pressure. Should he get rid of the magazine? I will plead with him. You or talk to him or, right or, or, now. Or, oh, oh uh, I, I hope you don't do this. If you succumb to these people on this issue, <laughs> they'll go from here to other things. Soon you'll have no control over your store. If you, if you knuckle under to the pressure of these women, none of whom are very attractive, you happen to notice. Uh, uh, and, uh, Blue! And uh, there'll, there'll be Nothing no end. could be further from my mind. <laughs> so I, uh, I know it's going to be difficult because what these women are saying will probably get into the press because they've already had their press releases uh, released before they've spoken to you. And you're going to come across as a, as a, as a, as a villainous man if you if you do not uh, conform to their wishes. But if you do conform to their wishes, you're not really going to be controlling your business. And um, besides, I like these magazines, and I'm not alone. Well, so please don't do it. Well, you're, you're preaching to the converted. <laughs> Does anybody want to advocate the position of the MDs? Yes, I would say, as Michael John said, uh, what counts is not that everyone shall speak, but everything worth saying shall be said. And when you're stocking your bookstore, you should make, you necessarily have to discriminate in the kinds of uh, uh, publications you offer simply because of limited shelf space. I do. And this, I do. And, and, and this category falls well below Shakespeare uh, and Charles Dickens and a host of other authors, and it's being at the sort of at the footstool, if you will, of, of literature. Um, it should be the first place to yield to other shelf space, especially since Mr. Well-Read clearly desires to expand um, his reading uh, acquaintance with well, some of our Congressman uh, great authors. I, wondered, I, I want to suggest to my free market friend here that uh, there was another consideration, and that is presumably the bookstore is expected to make some money. And what if uh, this is, in fact, a major cash cow for the bookstore? Well, and actually, if you, if you got, no, well, you're talking about, you're saying, well, we're not censoring it for content, we're censoring it for space. Hmm. And it may well be that a relatively small amount of space for these is what keeps you going and keep open extra hours and you might even be able to expand. But this is, this actually, is, this yeah, is actually, Workman, right? Yeah. This is not a major cash cow. It's yeah. Workman magazine, yeah. which we've right. all, which some of us have written for. So we know where it stands in, right. the, in the scheme of things. Yeah. Anyway, most college uh, uh, stores, uh, bookstores make most of their money on T-shirts. <laughs> well, and in fact, those kinds. But would of you censor those? Because I've seen some T-shirts that <laughs> well, would probably I would get censor people. The next, shirt. the next thing that happens, since uh, I gather, uh, Mr. Stone, you've decided to keep the the books at this point. But the next thing that happens is one of the MDs is working in your bookstore, and she goes to uh, the university and files a sexual harassment complaint. She says that to. Uh, be forced to be in your store where this vile, pornographic, subordinating, degrading literature is there is inconsistent with her rights as an employee that uh, it constitutes sexual harassment. It's a hostile work environment. Uh, is this going to uh, change your attitude? No, I'm going to have to simply tell her that she's mistaken. And that is that a legal opinion? Uh, I, I'm not entitled to a legal opinion. Well, you are entitled to consult <laughs> university counsel. Well, I, I don't think that's the first thing I, I would do. I suppose, I would, I suppose in, 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 in reality, I would have to do that first, as a, uh, as a result of which I suppose I'll do that first. <laughs> well, what, what, 
<coughs> I mean, I, on the other hand, there are a couple of things I could, I could say to this young person. <laughs> Try. Well, I could say that uh, there, there, we, we, cannot, we cannot really, regardless of what we do, remove a sexual subtext from everyday life. And to try to do that by, by, by taking this particular sort of silly magazine, which in its way is, is, uh, is rather high-minded. Oh, don't worry about that. We want to censor everything that right. has I know sex you and do. violence. I realize you it's do. It's not just that I, re I realize you do. I realize you do. But you, your impulse is basically an impossible one, because you cannot take sexuality out of everyday life. Uh, not by re re removing magazines. There's no way back into the garden. Your impulse, essentially, is uh, aggressively Puritan. Well, I'm not trying to take sexuality out of life. To be very precise, I'm trying to take sex, sexually explicit sexist speech out of my workplace life, and I think I'm entitled to that under the law. And I'm going to go to my lawyer here, uh, Professor Carter, and ask him, isn't this sexual harassment? Isn't this violating my civil rights? Not yet. I, I, I well, so when will it? No, no, what I, what, I, what I mean is that you would probably <laughs> need more than that to make a case, although I have to say, if I'm university counsel and you come to me with this complaint, I probably would want to go talk to the university president because the trouble is something like this is You've about to one. get out. You've got one. <laughs> talk to him. Well, Mr. President. <laughs> You've <You're> been demoted. <laughs> <laughs> You're familiar with the with the facts. My legal opinion is that this is not constitute sexual harassment, uh, even under the cases involving a hostile workplace environment. I don't think it comes close, but I also think there are going to be substantial political costs to the university. If, uh, if we simply rest on my opinion, so like a good lawyer, I want to bucket upstairs to my client. <laughs> well, one of the advantages of no longer being an electoral position, but being in a university, <laughs> is that political considerations need bother me less than they used to, and haven't been all that much of a problem. Well, you do have a board now, of trustees, but, sir. Um, the answer is that I uh, think we will leave the book in there. It is a great mistake if you start getting intimidated by the fear of an action, what you then get is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And uh, I think a university above all, which is supposed to be a bastion for freedom of expression, should say absolutely not. And among other things, I think we have an intellectual well, lesson to teach to these young people, which is uh, that if you over-argue a case, you damage it. If you define sexual harassment so broadly, you will wind up weakening the core of sexual harassment that ought to be there as doctrine. And uh, in fact, I think it's very important for the university to say we will not be intimidated, particularly in a matter of freedom of expression. And since you advise me it doesn't violate the law, I'm glad to hear that. I would hope it wouldn't violate the law. I will consider it the university's duty to try to defend the, uh, the, 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 the extent to which the law currently protects freedom of expression rather than set an unfortunate precedent to erode it. Well, let me, uh, let me give you one, one last chance to back out uh, in, the in the following way, uh, because I want to know what to tell Mr. Stone, who's consulted me. Are you directing me to tell him to leave the book in there, or are you directing me to tell him it's up to him what to do? I'm directing you to tell him that it is up to him what to do, except that's, I don't want to totally wash my hands. I want to say that he should not, in my judgment, and here I will direct him, he should not consider political damage to the university or the university's reluctance to be sued, that those are irrelevant. 
I want him to make the decision based on his decision about what should be in the bookstore, and I do not want him to, I, 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 so it's a mixed decision. I want him to listen to me to the extent that I'll worry about the politics and the law, and the answer is, as far as they're concerned, they are no reason to take it out. As to whether or not you leave it in for other reasons, that's up to him. I, I would like to. Yeah, um, I would like to suggest something to the bookstore owner too. As the uh, head of the women's studies program at the university. Well, whoever Should. I am, uh, <laughs> whoever I am this week, uh, I, I suggest that you might ask the, one of the ask the young woman who is uh, doing this whether you would whether she would like her book removed, which happens to be, I know, uh, a couple of them extremely sexually explicit. Well, no, actually, we only want books written by, by men and for men to be removed. But um, <laughs> during, uh, during all of this controversy uh, with the MDs and they're starting to have protests and boycotts outside the bookstore to try to exert some of that free market I pressure. I warned you. Uh, <laughs> I warned the president about that. Well, there's a, uh, there's a certain uh, public student publication on campus uh, called the Arrow Mouth Review. Uh, which has really increasingly pilloried the MDs, and they're getting more and more vehement in their criticism, and suddenly the MDs can't take that any longer. So they get up early one morning, and they grab all of the copies of the Arrowmouth Review uh, before they can be distributed. Um, again, we've got a situation where uh, uh, the president has found out about this, uh, and he's consulting his uh, university general counsel. Well, as as general counsel, but uh, the president uh, has may have his own ideas first. Well, before my, he my, my left out one. I assume that these were free. That is, they didn't take something that was supposed to be sold. They were, were just free available, free for anybody who came by to pick right. them up. Well, I suppose the question would be: I, I very much condemn that action. I do not think people should try to physically prevent other people from reading things. Is there a legal principle on which we can act. On the other hand, they are theoretically free, so it's not, it's not theft, there's no, uh, uh, is there a, a good legal principle by which we can, or a good university principle, by which we can prevent people from doing that sort of thing? I hope there's a good university principle by which we can, uh, uh, we can prevent it. That is, I would hope that we would have um, something in our codes about uh, about that kind of interference with the free speech rights of others. I think it's very important that we not confuse the absolute right to register distaste for someone else's message with the privilege to keep other people from finding out uh, what that message is, no matter how distasteful uh, it might be. So I hope that our university's disciplinary code would cover that uh, uh, that activity, even though one could, of course, also condemn the content of this uh, uh, magazine, whatever it was that was that was uh, uh, confiscated. President Frank, great lawyer, perfect advice, right price. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I mean, I think that, that that advice is exactly right, and uh, the notion that uh, you have a right to physically prevent other people from expressing their opinion is outrageous. And there is so you've now found a, a solution that you're not no longer. P uh, bemused or, or stymied by the fact that these were free newspapers. You right. see that, that the, it can be treated as yes. a theft and punished uh, anyway. Now, there might be close cases. Uh, it, it is one thing to articulate the principle, as I'm sure my, my counsel agrees. That doesn't mean that in every instance you'll be able to decide whether someone who took uh, 15 of these to bring back to the dorm and they were the last 15 and she said she was going to give them to her friends. Uh, it's not a principle you want to uh, 
apply excessively, uh, but there are very well, clear cases here and where they were clearly involved in taking these so that other people couldn't read them. That has no place in a university. They want to pick it. They want to demonstrate. They want to well, jump actually, up and down I, outside. Well, actually, I never That's said that they, they took them because uh, they didn't want other people to read them. They took them because uh, they decided to have a demonstration. Uh, in the middle of campus, they piled up all of these newspapers and uh, lit them on fire and gave speeches uh, denouncing sexism and denouncing you, I'm Everything. sorry to say, and denouncing your uh, general counsel for your insensitivity to sexism. Uh, isn't that classic free speech? No. Everything but burning the newspapers. They wanted to burn something else, assuming there was no state law against open burning. No, wait, they you're saying that. they... <laughs> well, there are in some states. I mean, well, look, so we know that they can burn the American flag. Uh, the yes. Supreme Court has said they can burn and the cross. And you're the saying they can't burn the Arrowmouth Review? That's yes. more sacred no, than the U.S. flag? I am flag? saying they cannot burn... They can burn one copy of the Arrowmouth Review. Um, if, in fact... no, if, In fact, the American flag would have the same view in this sense. If, in fact, there were a whole bunch of American flags that the... American Legion had prepared to give out to people on Memorial Day because they wanted them to wave them and be patriotic. And a group of people very opposed to American policy in Haiti would have taken all those flags and burned them, then I think they could be dealt with because they took someone else's property for the purposes of depriving them of the use they wanted to make of it. But as far as, so if they wanted to symbolically burn uh, several copies, as long as they were not interfering with other people's right to read them, no problem. I don't understand why there should necessarily be a limit on the number of copies. After all, they could say the, the larger the fire, the greater the state. Because the, well, and because the effect of it is... Because the effect of it is, because the fire is incidental. You, you, the fire is a red herring. Nobody's talking about the fire. They can, whether or not they use them for a fire is irrelevant. The, so that the well, fire, the fire is, is not symbolic the, speech, Barney. But, the, but it's not, and I, therefore it's not being punished, and it is not a problem. On the other hand, they don't have a right to appropriate someone else's materials to well, make their fact, fire. That's the a good point, point is that's but, a good and, point, but, President Frank, because in fact nobody was reading the Arrowmouth Review anyway. So nobody's being deprived of something they would otherwise. Well that's nonsensical. That's just nonsensical. You can't well, it's and if no one was reading it, what you were what are you even worried about? But it was stipulated, Barney, that these were free publications. Yes. And to take all of the publications property. They don't, they don't that's true. they aren't owned by anybody when they're made free. That's right, and that's why it's not the crime of theft, but it is in fact at the university, and it's not a crime now, although I gather they're thinking about making it one in Maryland, but the um, university has a right to a policy that says taking these papers for the purpose of not letting other people read them, i.e. taking all of them, is illegitimate. And encouraging students to say, oh yeah, but look, let's be really clever. Let's say that the only reason we took them is to build a fire. Now, no one in the world will believe that. It will be a lie. But let's encourage students to believe that if they tell some really stupid lying like that, they get away with it. No, that's not in my university. We say very clearly, you people can understand this. <laughs> if, in fact, can I, if in fact you take them so nobody can read them, then we're going to discipline now, now, you. Now, Barney, you, you sound like the queen of hearts. The sentence first, verdict afterwards. Uh, no, nonsense. I'm talking the facts. case before there's any evidence. Well, no, oh no, but that's crazy. I said there had to be evidence. I said there had to be evidence. You've already, you've already stipulated that it would be impossible for anyone to have taken I, I those papers for the purpose of burning and not to deprive right. All of the papers, yeah. About, about the uh, potential law, because we seem to be stuck on this point that it's not theft now, or there seems to be a consensus. Uh, what would your view be, Mr. Fine, about uh, creating a law that would make it a crime to take one or more newspapers uh, with the intent to destroy them or prevent other individuals from reading them. Totally irrelevant whether they're free or for sale. Would you support that? Is that a good idea? Or to take one 
Do, if the 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 items being taken belong to no one, it's abandoned property. Well, as far as I know, under Cornerstone well, law, it's abandoned property. Anyone can. Can take I make a suggestion, though? Suppose we pass want. a law that says the public sure has a right to put them out, subject to a condition which says you may only take one per person, and that you would give the law, the, you would enforce that by law. I agree, you don't want total ambiguity. But I would say, let the, or let the publisher say no more than one per person, or five per person, or two per person, uh, and give the publisher the right of a free paper to set the terms under which the paper can be distributed, and that it would then be a violation of that person's rights to violate those terms. And I, I, I might add, uh, on the, on, I don't want to turn this into a legal debate, but, but I think that what Mr. Frank said is, is, is close to the law, that is the fact that something is distributed free doesn't necessarily mean it's been abandoned. It, there can be conditions on the on the free distribution, and so there's a property just for me, which means it could still be theft. Okay. Well, let's. Uh, despite all of this problem and, and uh, uh, stress, Mr. Wellred does graduate from college, and he gets a job at uh, a play, at a shipbuilding company called the Jeffersonville Shipyards. Uh, now, this, along with many other such companies, has long been dominated by. Uh, male employees. There has been a long history of gender-based discrimination. Finally, there are a few women who are working there as welders, but they have such a terrible time. They're discriminated against. They're harassed. People are always asking them for joke, for, for dates, making jokes about them, sexist comments. Uh, so they bring a lawsuit. And one of the things that they complain about in their lawsuit is the presence of what they call pornographic pictures around the workplace. And uh, they asked the judge for an order that would ban from the workplace any sexually suggestive pictures at all. Well, how do you feel about that, Mr. Wellred? Is that something these women deserve and should have? I feel awful about that because I like looking at pictures of good-looking women. I think it's... Oh, some of these are ugly, though, really ugly pictures. <laughs> oh. Well, it, it's in the eye of the beholder. I, I find them fetching. I like to look at them, and there's a variety of them, and I like variety. And to feel that I can't have the choice of liking variety and seeing it depicted on the walls of Yeah, but we're not talking about you. We're talking about these poor women who are The women are offended by these photographs, by these well, pictures on the They're not just offended, they're demeaned. It's a hostile and abusive environment for them. They can't function equally as employees in that environment. I would I would I would find that uh, um, hard to to believe, but on the other hand, I don't want to be one-sided about this. I'd like to communicate somehow a, t uh, a sensibility toward their feelings, though I don't feel it inside myself. Does, does somebody uh, want to try to raise his sensitivity? Yeah. Uh, I would feel that, that if... Ms. Stoll, if, if, can you if, help him? Can well, you I would, no, Scott, finally, I would, feel that, I would feel that, I would feel that the, the fact that, that these women would find offensive photographs of women who willingly, willingly posed for well, those they don't pictures. know that. In well, fact, they, uh, they believe that a lot of these women were forced into it after all, you know, by definition. Who would do that willingly? Well, they well, must have been well, then, they, then they should extend it to, 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 this, to the swimsuit ads in, in, oh, in yes, New York, yes. New York they, Times they, magazines. I mean, yes, oh yes, that's definitely so covered. I say Remember, that, that, what that, they've asked the judge for is an that, order banning all 
sexually subjective all, pictures. All bathing suits. Like all bathing oh, so women should they should oh, ban the terrible. bathing suit. I'd say you terrible. have to ban the bathing suit. Oh, yeah. they make it, no, no, make keep it. the bathing keep more than the bathing suit on the woman actually. Right. Yeah. Well then put them in mumus or something like that. Well actually um, what happens is uh, the judge has a very different attitude from yours because the judge does grant their order, uh, their request, and the judge has now ordered, uh, completely banned from the entire workplace, any sexually suggestive images of a woman. And that is defined as uh, any picture of a woman who is dressed other than in appropriate business attire uh, for purposes of calling attention to her sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. So how does that affect you, given what you like to do during uh, lunch breaks and what you like to bring to your... <laughs> it, uh, it certainly uh, makes me, <laughs> makes me uh, feel that I am incapable of, um, of arousal. Make it, it, it makes me feel that we are at the mercy of lawyers. <laughs> makes me feel that you're going to give up shipbuilding. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, they've won their lawsuit so far. Uh, does uh, Mr. Wellred have any uh, uh, lawsuit? Because he's now prohibited from bringing to work a picture of his wife in a bathing suit, his Workman magazine, um, Sports Illustrated, many other things. Uh, does this violate any, any legal rights that he has, Mr. Fine? I don't think so. He could make a First Amendment claim that the application of the sexual harassment provision of civil rights laws uh, are an unconstitutional invasion of freedom of speech, I think would be reasonably weak claim. Why? If, in fact, there was a showing that there was uh, two reasonable female employees uh, harassment-like atmosphere generated by these pictures, which uh, serve no business purpose uh, in relating to on-the-job performance. Well, what, wait. shipbuilding, not on-the-job performance of others. We, but, uh, I mean, he's, he just is asking, he's not asking to look at these magazines or photographs while he's working, but he is required to stay on the workplace, practically speaking, because it's isolated uh, during lunch breaks and coffee breaks. And uh, he's saying that he has the right to, uh, to read these materials unobtrusively uh, on his own time. But I, but I don't think the judge's order went so far that someone could not... Oh, the judge's off. order definitely oh, went that far. We'll define then exactly what the judge's order prohibits. No, the, you cannot bring onto the workplace for uh, premises for any purpose any sexually explicit image. So are you saying he does now that you understand it? Does he yes, have it? Yes, and I, I would have a difficult time understanding how a judge or how the female employees would be offended by someone bringing on uh, to the workplace a publication which they don't even know exists because they don't even see it. They don't even know what's in it. That seems to me so far-fetched as to believe someone I was told you none of this is decided the case. Well, none of this is far-fetched. Um, do we have any, any dissent? Anybody want to speak out in favor oh. of the women in light of yeah. the long history and the pervasive... Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think I... I mean, it's in a context. I think because of my own long history, I have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you've ever been in a place, if you've ever worked in a place which is... Um, uh, which in, in which... Um, uh, you're, you're only one or three women among 15 or guys or something like that. Uh, it's not a question, I mean, what you, what you describe is kind of benign, really, pictures of people in bathing suits. And what you like to look at is sweet gay. 
I mean, Mr. Wellred. <laughs> Sweet compared to what is on red as it used to be. To, uh, compared to what is on walls uh, and, uh, yeah, and and so Grace, forth. What if it's not on walls? Because I think we would agree. Well, I don't care if walls. he has it in his back pocket. Because you take a look at it, and, you know. But that's all. That's all we're talking take about. any time out of uh, his work. Uh, I mean, as far as that's concerned, I I I, I think he can be as uh, you know whatever he is. Yes, that's that's as long as he wants and whenever. The, the, I, but, I do uh, say. Uh, but I don't. But I don't. But but for but for the um, fact of being surrounded by uh, by by w what are really degrading images and uh, uh, and um, harmful, deeply harmful to people, uh, to women. You, you know, it's it it isn't worth your um, uh, Mr. Wellred's uh, 30 seconds of absolute uh, delight. And, uh, well, his looking around. Actually, if, if I didn't mean to short it like that, but I'm sorry. Well, I, there's, there's, there's one point here that I think ha has to be made, and you, you asked if anyone wants to uh, uh, defend the judge's order. Now, the judge's order, as you describe it, does sound a little bit overbroad, and perhaps the judge was over-enthusiastic, but I think one has to recognize, let me say this in the defense of, of this judge, uh, sexual harassment law is fairly new, and every new area of the law it goes through a period of oscillation uh, between going too far and not going far enough. That's a fairly common uh, point in our history and development of every field of the law, and I think one has to give it time to find its proper footing. I think it is perfectly reasonable to try to draw distinctions between the rights of individual employees to have at their workstations or wherever the materials that please them, and at the same time, the rights, it does seem to me that it's a matter of right of uh, women in the workplace long subjected to discrimination not to feel pushed back, pushed down, pushed away, or indeed in some sense uh, uh, made less uh, than uh, they are, treated as less than they are because of an overabundance of such materials. Maybe the judge in that case went too far. Maybe the judge in another case won't go far enough, but one hopes that over time, uh, without regard to judges' orders, we can find a happy medium in this uh, for ourselves. But I, I, just oh, I, think, think I, think, I think my case is mis misrepresented because as a worker, I just like to look at pictures of, of women that I think are very becoming to women, f uh, not what's been suggested, which is that they're degrading to women. So I think that the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the beauty of women is en enhanced and emphasized by such pictures as I like to have it on my locker or my factory uh, place. And um, so it is along those lines, celebrating rather than demeaning women, that I like to look at pictures of women unclothed. Can I say, uh, I agree with Professor Carter's effort to get the law right. I think the judge's order, as you described it, went way too far, and I think Grace agreed as, as we uh, adumbrated it, because I think there's a principle that's involved here. And I, it's what I talked about with the sexual harassment. That is, I think it is very important because of its impact in part on free expression that we differentiate when we talk about harassment. Harassment ought to be, I, mean, I, I have a preference. I would like every word to be as narrowly defined as possible and for there to be a different word for every phenomenon because I think otherwise we get into serious kinds of difficulties. And if harassment we becomes... We have an even higher rate of illiteracy then, I think. Well, <laughs> yeah, but we have it now uh, and it causes problems. If harassment is not simply if you are personally directing things towards me, but if I can consider it harassment because you are doing something in the other end of the room that I don't like, then we have real problems. And that's a, that's a very real distinction. It is harassment 
for me have to, to, to have to confront constantly these degrading pictures all over, the, all over the place and for people to watch me in front of them and inevitably comment on me and compare me to them, et cetera. It is not harassment for somebody else to sit there in the corner and read terrible, vicious, stupid things. Right. And, and, and the, the problem is, you know, we have the, the, the metaphor that you should not throw out the baby with the bathwater. We really need the opposite today in public policy. If you don't throw out the bathwater, you drown the baby. And when you over-define harassment, what you're doing uh, is exactly that. So I think there's a very, very important distinction in reaching that policy goal between criticism, abuse, ridicule, et cetera, aimed at you, and a general climate which you, uh, or, or other things people are doing which you oppose. And I think that harassment ought to be limited to the first. Okay, I uh, want to move on to one final scenario. And I'm gonna start with uh, you, Ms. Stahl, because a few years ago you wrote a book, uh, a work of investigative journalism that was based on some of your pathbreaking stories for uh, TV. And you were very thrilled when Metropolis newspaper, a very powerful, influential newspaper, uh, decided to review this book. And you were particularly thrilled when you found out that Robert Stone was going to be uh, writing the review of your book. However, uh, when the review came out, you were less than thrilled, to say the least. It was an extremely unflattering review. Uh, it decreased uh, the sales of the books and, and depressed your career in general. Uh, and I mean, among the statements that were made in this review were that uh, your book contained unfounded insinuations. It uh, exhibited sloppy journalism. Now, what are you gonna do about this? Well, knowing what I know about uh, reviewers, um, I, and, and what little I know about the law, and I admit that, I don't think that I have a case, a libel case against him. Um, if you had a case, would you want to bring it? Well, that's another question. I would, uh, I would be inviting more and more publicity, <laughs> negative publicity. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, what would your thought process be? Let's assume that the I law is a blank slate and you could influence well, the I law uh, by bringing or not bringing this case. Would you? <laughs> I, what would your thought process be? Because you're well, I'd be very, I'd be honest with you and tell you I'd be very concerned about the negative publicity. On the other hand, I'd probably, uh, I would probably love to sue the bastard. <laughs> and uh, I could consult a lawyer, and he told me I had any standing. I know I'd be so angry. Um, I would be interested. Now you're a journalist. You're a journalist, and you're a writer. Do you have any concern that if you could bring this kind of lawsuit against Mr. Stone and against Metropolis, that somebody else might be able to bring a similar lawsuit against well, you? Li li libel is libel. If he's inaccurate and he maliciously came after me, and there was really uh, one lie after the next, yeah, I think it would be fair for me, fair game, and I I stand. Uh, vulnerable on the same grounds for a public figure. Uh, for, for so you would be willing figure. to subject yourself to the, the same standards and... Well, I, I am subjected. I'm out there anyway. Okay. Vulnerable to those same standards. Do you want to ask uh, legal advice? I suggest that you retain Mr. Fine as, as a lawyer. Well, what do you think? Well, I, I think mean, there I can was show a you that, that uh, at least in four different paragraphs, there was a recent, very similar case called Maldea against the New York Times Company, in which at least you file suit in the United States District Court here, you can uh, prevail uh, so long as you're able to prove that those allegations of sloppy journalism 
our insinuations were factually inaccurate and could prove the requisite malice. The arguments which our moderator has suggested militate against a, uh, a cause of action were rejected by the Court of Appeals here, and I think it's uh, a wise decision. And it must be underscored, however, that to win, you've got to prove not only that those claims were false, but that they were knowingly false. It's a very demanding standard. So to acknowledge your right to sue is not to open the floodgates to anybody to recover damages if someone makes some questionable call or uses an adjective that perhaps was misplaced throughout a book review. Uh, and I think that you took a very uh, honorable position in stating you yourself should be and you would welcome being subject to lawsuits if someone had credible evidence that you knew that what you were writing was factually false and you published anyway. Well, let well, me ask practice, Mr. Stone, as the author of this review, what do you think about this? Well, in practice, I can't, I can't, uh, I, I can't level a generalized charge of sloppy journalism. If I say sloppy journalism, I have to cite specifics. What else did I say? Uh, <laughs> unfounded insinuations. And, and so the same. I mean, in, by, by the laws of, 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 of logic and, and, and of, of the essay, I mean, independent for once of the laws of the land, which seem so overwhelming in this discussion. It's, uh, I mean, it really makes you think that there isn't any consent at all, you know, well, on any level of society. Okay, uh, I, I, I would think that not only by the law, uh, of, of the land, but, but by the law of, 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 of the ethics of journalism and reviewing, I, would, I couldn't make those charges without being specific. Well, I want to ask uh, two follow-up questions. First of Mr. Fine, uh, because I have uh, uh, a couple of law students where I teach who are interested, who believe that the judge's decision that you have been praising itself uh, reflected quite sloppy reasoning and uh, careless analysis, and they want to write a case comment saying that. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned. Are they going to be facing potential liability now if they uh, publish in this uh, jurisdiction? Well, certainly if they are tutored by someone who is esteemed and renowned as yourself, I'm sure they would not at all confront such vulnerability. After all, you would be the last one to authorize them to make a statement that was either false and more especially knowingly false. And so long as they did their homework under your, uh, uh, your supervision, I'm sure they would not lose a, 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 a second of sleep in the evening worried about being sued by the judges whom they critique. Okay, my second follow-up question, I'm going to convene the uh, Penn Writers Advisory Committee again. Uh, not only Mr. Stone, but Ms. Paley and, and Mr. Talese. You're to trying to decide uh, whether Penn should file a brief in this case, as uh, Mr. Fine has indicated, it is going to be up on appeal, and you're trying to decide whether on balance writers are better off or worse off if the uh, law stays as was stated in the lower court, that these kinds of opinions about sloppy journalism, unfounded allegations, uh, can be the basis of a libel lawsuit. Is that something that a writer's organization should support or oppose? I guess we call a lawyer in, right? <laughs> right. No, no, because this is this is First new thing. this is new territory. The question is, what do you want the law to be? Where do you want it to go as writers? We wouldn't we wouldn't even meet without a lawyer. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
We have we have one. We no. have a one. I guess oh, I should I, I should I should name one of you William Shakespeare. I think you <laughs> might have met without a lawyer, but not on a case like this. It's only after that no, I mean, killed and Richard the third. To the extent that I mean we would we would help That's we would hold an ineffectual <laughs> and, and, and and entirely moot meeting where it would consist entirely of writers. Uh, and consequently be of very little moment. And each person would get up but and we would, give we would have an opinion. her or his own experience. <laughs> and we would and by that the meeting would be over. It would be a very <laughs> long meeting. It would be a very long meeting and people would react to it. You're demonstrating that to us now. We're getting that <laughs> it might be a very, an unusually interesting brief, actually. It might be a good writing process. Well, uh, one more question on this subject. Congressman Frank. Um, some writers and publishers are lobbying Congress to pass a bill that would absolutely prohibit any libel lawsuit for any expressions of opinions in book reviews. Uh, would you support that? I would, yeah. Um, I think I was surprised that sloppy would, uh, would, would uh, be considered to be of a sufficient factual basis one way or the other. Uh, if someone makes a blatantly false clearly factual statement. She took the money when she didn't take the money. That might be the basis. But uh, whether or not insinuations were founded or unfounded, and whether or not you were sloppy or not, I, I would like to restrict that. Now, it's always hard to legislate it, and you'd, you'd have a problem with exactly what the words would say. But I would, in general, be for, uh, uh, for restricting it, and I think that is a uh, mistake. Can I add one other thing? Because I, I, Just with what Mr. Stone was saying, we ought to be clear. And we are talking about some things at the margins. With all that, it does seem to me, we, I, I hope people aren't feeling terribly besieged in the press. It does seem to me that expression in this country is freer now than it's ever been and freer than it is in most places of the world. We should still be fighting for it. But I hope that out of this, people don't get the sense and, or that Congress is on the verge of shutting everybody up. I really think that we, it seems to me people are still allowed, fortunately, to say the most preposterous and abusive things all the time. And that's the way it, it ought to be. But in this case, I would restrict libel cases uh, to, to uh, factual misstatements and, and opinion, uh, 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 most adjectives I would leave uh, libel free. Well, on that note, in the interest of protecting the audience's free speech rights, we're going to cut off the panel discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank our distinguished panelists for their lively uh, dialogue. And I think that this exercise vividly demonstrates the wisdom of an observation by Justice William O. Douglas, uh, in which he made a statement quite paralleling Winston Churchill's famous aphorism about democracy. Douglas said, freedom of speech is a very dangerous thing, but it's the safest thing we've got. Thank you very much. Set up for that purpose. And please address your question to anybody in, on the panel. Well, you've been dealing with uh, mostly fictional situations. Uh, I'm curious specifically uh, uh, Barney Frank's reaction, but anyone else's too. Back a few years ago when we had the revelations of uh, the person I think you originally knew as Hot Buns, but we came later to know as Steve Gobi, and you know, the, reading in the different publications and hearing on broadcasts such as Geraldo, we learned about uh, this prostitution ring that was coming out of your residence, and you know you seem to be out of the loop about. And then 
Okay, I, I'm going to cut you off. Well, no, no. I think you. I think this is a First well, Amendment speech that so you, question. you know, may you may find dangerous, but I think it may be revealing as well. We, the rule uh, was questions and no comments. I think we have to question now. Don't, well, I, is this? I mean, the the is this? I, the question I have is, are these the uh, revelations that our you know our founding fathers had about our public servants? That uh, you know, is this part of what? Well, the First you Amendment cut is you taught his mutandus, you probably would have gotten that about Ben Franklin. I don't know about the other founding fathers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you. And I, I do want to reemphasize what I said at the beginning, that every single question was based on an actual situation. I posed it in hypothetical form, but don't delude yourselves. They're not based on reality. Hi, I have two quick questions. One is to Mr. Talese. Uh, I'm sort of curious uh, about this uh, work that you're doing on the Bobbitt case. You mentioned that writers are usually motivated by character, and yet you said that neither one of the central characters are very interesting. Um, just out of curiosity, why do the story then? Uh, I hope I didn't say they're not very interesting. Uh, they're, they're not major. They're, not, um, they're young, and they are um, not able to support, a, from a writer's point of view, a large work. And I think I suggested that I reached out to find other characters, minor characters, perhaps, to give a, a, um, a dimension to the work, not unlike, I hope to think, what Robert Altman does so well in his films, when he has so many characters that he gives a whole sense of a society. I think in the Bobbitt story, I have about eight or nine characters that give me a sense of a society, uh, two societies, one, the immigrant class, the new immigrant class, represented by Lorena Bobbitt, and in the case of John Bobbitt, of uh, the blue-collar world, or the world of, so, of, 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 of uh, young men after they leave the military. So it is exploring that world of, of not, not the rejects, but the discharged among the blue-collar working class that forms so much of our military that interests me. And that's what think is the simplest way I can explain. I guess what I meant was other than the act itself, is the story interesting beyond the, the, the is the, are the elements of the story interesting on themselves other than the publicity that the act itself received? Oh yes, the story has so many dimensions to it that I'm sure everyone here has, has uh, uh, some sense of what I'm saying, although your views and mine might differ. Uh, the assault on, on, on the penis did many things, not the least of which was to make the penis a word we can discuss today, as we could not. You're the only one who's used that word on this panel. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure, less than a year ago, that would have been it would, would have been a rather shocking uh, uh, usage of the word. I remember when the first uh, when the New York Times last July had it in the headline. It, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the occasion of that fated evening for John Bobbitt. It was f four weeks later on the science page of the New York Times in the middle of July. The Incident, as the Washington Post referred to it first, was uh, was June 23 of 1993. But in July 17, almost three weeks later, the Times Science section had uh, a story about two surgeons in Manassas, Virginia, who performed the reattachment. And the Times did indeed have penis in the headline. And my wife at the breakfast table said, "God, I can't believe it! Look at the New York <laughs> Jesus!" And she handed this over. And there it was. Now, say, we, this we, journalism we, we, is being made. High, high moment in journalism. We pioneered that headline in the Daily News back in the 50s. We ran a headline that went, Pen is mightier than sword. And we, <laughs> we blew the first one. 
We're ahead of you. Mr. Spitzer. My question is for Bruce Fine. Going back to the early part of this evening's discussion, periodically in the newspapers I'll read about someone who, after perhaps excessive reading of the Bible, comes to believe that he's the angel of death or the beast of the revelation and goes out and commits some terrible murder. Uh, under your save bill, do you think that the uh, Bible publishing company could be held liable for uh, the results of that crime? And if not, what's the difference between that and the publisher of uh, uh, Workman magazine? Not to mention the author. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think the author is judgment proof. <laughs> the answer is probably not, because under the bill, there must be a showing that there was reasonable cause for the publisher, the distributor, to believe that what was being distributed and its availability would be acted upon. That doesn't require someone to have exceptional powers of prescience, you know, being like the oracles at Delphi. It means what can reasonably expected of a person in that business. And, and so if we've seen this a hundred times, that's not enough? It's an unreasonable burden to expect that that publication would have uh, evoked that kind of problem. Even though we've seen quite a few such examples. Sure. I'm not sure that you can say quite a few examples in a country of 260 million people. Professor Carter wants to. Well, I, I, I think that, that, that while, while I, I think that, that Mr. Fine's answer is, is probably uh, uh, correct, I do think that this shows in, in, a way, in another way the danger of the whole concept. That is, people who write write in order to influence people. That is, if, if I sit down to write something that's a law review article or a book, I want to change people's behavior. I want people to act differently, think differently, vote differently, I don't know, because of what I've written. And so in a way, in, in some sense, what the, the, the bill asks people to show is, it's, I don't want to say it's why that someone writes. Not that people write in order to cause murder and rape and, and maiming, but rather that it is part of the writer's craft, after all, to try to persuade, to try to uh, move people to, uh, uh, to do things. I, I'm worried then about the notion that if, in effect, the, uh, one did this too successfully, you might say, <coughs> that, um, uh, that that's going to be the cause uh, for liability. I don't mean by, by saying that, by the way, to say that, that writing never does any harm, or it never moves people to do bad things. If writing can move people to do good things, it can move people to do bad things. If writing can do good, it can do evil. Uh, so I don't mean to suggest that, that writing can't do that, or it's not designed uh, to do that. But I think one has to recognize that the whole point of of the writing is, in effect, to have some uh, uh, some influence. Yes. But have, yeah, uh, can I just say something? I just want to. You were talking about the, about the Bible and all. I just wanted to say that it really happens to be quite responsible for uh, thousands of years of killing and murder. I mean, if you think of Inquisition and all those years. So, um, but I wanted to so uh, you can't sue or anything the, like the, that, right? The bill requires not that the author just wanted to persuade in any particular way. It's that there had to be a reasonable understanding and recognition that the persuasion would cause someone to criminal activity, uh, which is a quite narrow me, uh, standard than what you Two things. Placed. First of all, I think Mr. Fine's response to criticism is usually to try to define the bill out of any practical existence. And uh, if I was sure that it would, in fact, mean as little as he keeps arguing it would mean, I would be less opposed to it. But in fact, once you get out there to the juries, you can't always control it. And there are some other cases which, which are, are hardly hypothetical. When uh, Khalid Mohammed speaks uh, approvingly of Colin Ferguson, who shot people on the Long Island Railroad, uh, 
I, then I think you get a situation like that. Uh, when people who are opposed to abortion uh, talk, they are very often trying to get people, in fact, to shut down abortion clinics, and in some cases violate injunctions. I mean, the number of real cases where this is the situation, and we're not talking now about someone saying, you go shoot him, but when people are doing advocacy in general that could have that impact, uh, this is a very, very broad principle. I can't think of anything more subversive of uh, free speech than, uh, than this principle, and I can see no reason at all in logic or uh, in any other way why it should be only limited to pornography. If the argument is that you're going to be responsible if we can prove that you should have known that somebody was going to act on what you did, if we got to prove that you did know it and that's why you did it, then it won't mean anything. But that's clearly the not reason why you limit it to pornography is because it has such little value, Barney. Pornography isn't the Lincoln Douglas debate. Already, I'm going to have to. Neither is this, but that doesn't mean somebody should break it up. Mr. Siegel. This is a question for anyone, though it's prompted by Barney Frank's expression of support for legislation that would require insertion of a computer chip into television receivers. I, I guess it's usually referred to as the V-chip legislation. My understanding of such legislation is that it would create two kinds of discourse on television, the violent and the nonviolent, that some kind of commission is going to have to decide which fits into which kind of discourse. No. But, no? I'm well, at least the chip I'm in favor of is just it's up to the parent to, to use. I'm not for any labeling or anything else. I'm only for something which enhances parental control uh, well, so that the parent can can, can uh, decide on the, they can watch this program or not watch that program. I, I think we're talking about the same legislation, Barney. No, I don't think you're talking about something that's... Well, if, that's, if that piece of it is in the legislation, I'm against that piece of it. I haven't read the whole thing. All I am in favor of is requiring prospectively technology that will allow a parent to decide what the parent wants the kid to watch and what the parent doesn't want are, the kid to watch. Are you talking program by program or a... Yes, yeah, but it's all up to the parent. The parent decides for the week. The parent sits down on Sunday and says, okay, you can watch this, that, and the other, and you can't watch this, that, and the other. The general thing is this. I think we do have a right in this society to restrict children at some age. Now, what age? Is it 14, 15, 16? I don't know. Uh, but we have a, a right, in fact, I think a responsibility to give children guidance. What I want to avoid is a situation where the freedom of adults is inhibited by the valid need to, to regulate what children do. But I am talking about something that would be entirely in the hands of the parents with no governmental intervention whatsoever other than requiring that the parent be allowed to do it. Mr. Fallon. Yes, thank you, Nadine. Uh, of all the, all the scenarios you uh, set forth to the panel this evening, Nadine, involved cases of uh, more or less direct restraints upon speech. Uh, I want to put to you a slightly different case. I think we would all agree that at least as pernicious as direct restraints upon speech uh, is compulsory speech. And we see that a great deal today, if I may raise a politically incorrect issue, uh, in the area of compulsion through tax money uh, in support of speech that uh, some people find offensive on grounds of violence, the very subject before us this evening. And uh, I wonder if uh, any of the panelists, especially the fair weather libertarians, would have something to say about that. Well, now nobody's going to dare answer. I don't know back what, what's an example. <laughs> Speech. Uh, you have to give me an example. I assume well, you're not I, I, I'm talking about the National Endowment for the Arts, National Endowment for the Humanities, the uh, the people who oh okay, the Let people me who complain that the that uh, they do not want their tax dollars right. going to support works that they find uh, offensive. I, and I, I mean, this point could be made by Catherine McKinnon as well as by a judge. Or Collins. by most. I, I think that I make a very sharp distinction in the law between forcing people to contribute their tax money to activities of which they disapprove 
and between forcing them to engage in it. That is, I am for conscientious objections for people who, who are pacifists. They should not have to serve in the military. I do not favor letting them not pay taxes that go for the Defense Department. I am not for mandating that adult Christian scientists receive medical treatment, different for their kids. But I do not exempt adult Christian scientists, therefore, for paying Medicare taxes. Um, so I do not equate uh, being taxed to support an activity with being forced to engage in the activity. They may both be wrong, but they are clearly different. They have a, a different impact on one's personal autonomy. And in a democracy, if we were to adopt the principle that no one shall be forced to pay taxes for an activity to which he or she philosophically objects, and we got freedom of religion gets in here too. There are things that go on that violate some people's religious rules. That would be true with abortion, but it would be true also with Christian scientists and, and, uh, and Medicare. It, it's true, as I said, with the pacifists, uh, including some who have a religious-based pacifist objection, and for many years in America, only a religious-based pacifist objection was, was accepted, no longer the case. So, yeah, people who are religious pacifists are forced to spend money uh, on nuclear weapons. And uh, I, th I don't think you can force them to drop the nuclear weapon, but I do think that neutral principle uh, that that distinction is, is the only way to survive, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable one. So you're not bothered by the compulsory I, speech we have, aspects we don't have of it? I time for a follow-up question, but I, if any of the other panelists want to comment. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, freedom, freedom of speech, the First Amendment is conformed to, certainly, if, if a board is appointed by the state to bestow grants on works of art, and that board chooses works that are deemed somehow unsuitable, uh, it seems to me that unsuitable reflections, this area of, of, of unsuitability is in fact, in practical terms, where art lives and where it begins. You simply have to put up with a lot of nonsense in the world of art. There's no way around it. That's where art comes from. It comes from speculation, unsuitable reflection. In civil, if a civilized country appoints a board of recognized artists to bestow grants, these grants are found to be variously uh, unacceptable. It seems to me that interfering with that process is in fact wrong. I don't know about the legality of it, strictly. It seems to be wrong. It seems to be the wrong thing to do. It seems to demean that country in, in terms of its civilization. Yeah, and, and if I could just amplify on that, it seems to me the idea, uh, the principle is a wholly uh, uh, unwarranted one, it would suggest, for instance, that a uh, taxpayer's money who was used to support public school, which was teaching a course on uh, on capitalism or on Mao Zedong that the uh, taxpayer didn't like, uh, would have a right to withhold the taxes. Or chaplains like in the it. army. And those kind of decisions are made all the time, every time the government decides what the curriculum is, what's going to be taught in a state law school or state medical school. If someone says, I don't want you to, to, to examine cancer. In the, uh, in the state medical school. I want you to be devoting it to AIDS. I don't want my tax money going that. You, you couldn't run a representative democracy. We back to Athenian uh, uh, democracy, which as uh, James Madison said, uh, even if all were Socrates, it'd still be a mob in uh, its operation. <laughs> Next question. I find it a useful perspective uh, in this context to uh, keep reminding myself that the uh, greatest uh, power of censorship uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is held by those with editorial power over speech, which is exercised without any public accountability whatsoever, and certainly not by law. And that brings me to my question, uh, which is to one with editorial power over speech, and that is the moderator. Uh, in 
providing your examples, which you stress are from factual instances. Uh, and I refer here specifically to the shipyard case you posited. I wonder why you did not uh, answer our, our need for facts, or why you starved us for the very facts that the New York Times withheld from us and that the Washington Post withheld from us by never even covering that particular case to which you refer, such as the fact that the uh, judge, in prohibiting the bringing of uh, pornographic material into the workplace, and thus also prohibiting his foreman from, uh, or the foreman from providing the pornography for the workers in the form of tool company calendars and so on, uh, was simply bringing that into line with the employer's right, which the court upheld, to uh, not have any reading matter on the premises, which was indeed the prevailing rule at that particular workplace. The pornography was the exception to the rule. And I think it might have been helpful to have mentioned that, as well as perhaps to have given us a little bit more realistic idea of the way in which the pornography was used, not just to offend women, but to offend them by uh, being used to inhibit uh, or to protect men from having to compete on their own merits as welders or whatever else with these very few women who were attempting to work in that workplace and to threaten them so severely that there were parts of the workplace where they could not accept work and thus were given direct economic cost as well as severe pain of many other kinds. Well, uh, we're talking about, about that. Yeah. You know, when you're dealing with a decision, and I, I was relying on the decision itself rather than any uh, short excerpt, it's hun it literally hundreds of findings of fact. And um, I can simply ask Mr. Wellred, in light of those additional facts, do you have a different view as to the merits of the judge's rule, which notwithstanding everything that's been said, uh, would ban from the workplace not only the targeted pictures, but also you're bringing in your own pictures to look at in your own uh, free time. The, the use of the word pornography bothers And if the judge's order did not use the word pornography. It no, no, the, the, suggests the young ladies, uh, the questioners, use of the word pornography and the use of the word pornography before in our, in our dialogue is, of course, bothers, bothersome because it is indefinable. The uh, Sears and Roebuck catalog, some people can cause two messes. It can be an erotic expression. To others, the most erotic or the most um, explicitly sexual portrait of a, of a woman might not be in any way sexually arousing. So it is impossible to define what is pornography, what is obscenity. <laughs> no judge has ever done this to anyone's satisfaction, including the court. So I find it all very ambiguous, the whole discussion on this subject. Okay. Yes. No one seemed very interested in the idea of putting a warning label in front of television because it, or in front of a TV program because it was violent. I'd be interested to hear your comparison on the cable must carry local access laws. There's an argument that could be made that if a cable um, distributor has to choose 
uh, C-SPAN over HBO, that that limits the cable distributor's right. If you would like to distinguish that on the grounds of access, then the follow-up question is about um, children's television on Saturday morning. I believe there, there's a restriction on how much of that programming can be commercial, and it's restricted in terms of minutes. And I'd like to see how the panel would like to would talk about those two, if there's agreement that those are the same or, or if they're distinguishable. Well, logically, it would have to go to people who, and which I guess is the entire panel, oppose the, the warning labels. Well, I don't think, I hope no one heard me to say I opposed warning labels. I opposed government imposition of warning labels. The warning labels themselves, I thought, are a very good idea. So, so I want to... I, I, I want to make that uh, uh, that, that distinction. Right. But I think the question is asking about a comparison with another government-imposed government mm -hmm. rule. That's correct. <laughs> oh, you mean like the, the must-carry laws and so on? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, as a as a uh, for reasons I, I won't go in detail here, as a constitutional scholar, uh, I've certainly questioned the constitutionality of the must-carry rules. Uh, in some writing that I, I did on this subject uh, uh, years ago. Uh, the must-carry rules, I, I assume that most people know, maybe you don't, are rules uh, requiring, the rules have had various forms of the years that require uh, cable casters to carry certain signals, broadcast signals, in their areas, and it's seen as a way of protecting the broadcasters from uh, otherwise losing their signals as more and more homes are penetrated by... Uh, uh, by cable. Uh, cable is a heavily regulated industry, and maybe it shouldn't be, but it's treated largely as a common carrier uh, in, in regulation. That may be a mistake, but if it is a common carrier, uh, then to say that it has to carry certain things isn't any more a violation of its rights than to say the telephone company has to give everyone a telephone is a violation of its rights as a carrier of signals. You just have to decide if you think the cable industry is mainly common carrier or is mainly, a, in effect, a creator of information and messages. Well, cable companies do create programs very frequently. Oh, I agree. Uh, it isn't. Well, that's why I question the constitutionality. Been, uh, I agree. Common carrier. I think that there are very profound problems. There's a case you may know pending in the United States Supreme Court at present, which addresses uh, that yeah. general issue. And it seems to me difficult to distinguish in principle the must-carry rules, which require the propagation of at least many broadcasts that carry a, a political message from a Supreme Court decision saying that a, an automobile owner couldn't be compelled to carry a license plate that said live free or die uh, because he disagreed with that particular model. And I expect the, the Supreme Court will invalidate the must-carry rules in the recent uh, cable act. I, I would agree. I think the must-carry rules uh, are excessive. There is the problem that Professor Carter alluded to, that cable is, has been a monopoly to some extent. Fortunately, I think that will have eroded substantially. And uh, that's the explanation, I think, why some people have imposed it. Uh, the idea would be for, in my judgment, uh, no restrictions on people's ability to compete technologically, and then even the ghost of an argument for any kind of, of, of content rules would go. But I would do away with must-carry right now, and it's, I mean, I, frankly, I think most of the people in my business wish people would watch HBO instead of C-SPAN. Let, <laughs> let them call HBO and, and complain. But um, uh, I would do away with those, and I would do away with the restrictions on the Saturday morning on the, uh, on the uh, commercials, too. I, I am in favor of technologically empowering those responsible for children to be able to uh, check what their children are going to watch. But uh, beyond that, I do think there are some inconsistencies, and so I, I am opposed to those restrictions. Although, it, it, uh, although, uh, although I basically agree with you, Congressman Frank, it should be said, of course, that there are many parents 
who, for whatever reason, either cannot or will not I, exercise I agree, those, In fact, those, those, those the powers. tragedy is that it's the children, it, it is precisely because these are children who have parents who cannot or will not do it that they're most in need of it. I understand that. But I, uh, those, those have to be guided, I think, in a, in a somewhat broader way. Two more questions. Um, yes, this question is from Mr. Fine, and returning once again to the uh, pornography liability issue uh, legislation. I find myself disturbed by it and in agreement with um, Mr. Franks and other of the, the comments comparing it to um, political speech or all sorts of other speeches. And you, you uh, both in answering your question at the question period and initially seem to come back to the idea that, well, pornography is different because it has no value. I'm utterly confused as to how you're using value because my own subjective way, I could think of pornography that has great artistic value or literary value, and I could think of political statements that, to my mind, are pure trash. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Lincoln-Douglas debate probably would qualify um, for something of more value than what you typically see um, on television these days. The bill incorporates the definition of pornography or obscenity of the United States Supreme Court promulgated in California against Miller. That definition explicitly excludes any material that has any serious literary or artistic merit. So any of the descriptions that you provided uh, that did have such merit would, could not possibly be the foundation for a lawsuit. The other elements of the uh, the Miller test requires specific reference or depiction of sexual acts or sexual organs. Uh, and it also requires, as a third element of proof, that the portrayal of the sex be done in a way that's patently offensive to uh, community standards. Is it uh, indefinite? Yes. But most all legal concepts have some degree of ambiguity in them. You must use your sense in, in making distinctions of degree. Juries can sometimes be erroneous, but they're no more likely to do so in this area of law than in other areas of law. When two live crew in, in uh, the Maplethorpe and, and Serrano uh, cases got uh, publicity, the juries, generally speaking, decided these cases, I think, in a very sensible fashion. But to go back to your point, the reason why the, the, the material that you said had artistic merit or uh, literary merit would not qualify under the bills because it, it wouldn't be defined uh, as within its jurisdiction. Can I comment? Sure. Because here you, I, I hope people will remember what Professor Carter advised me in our council president response, and that is uh, we hear a lot about the chilling effect. This is why I think that legislation is particularly disastrous because, yeah, you can say, well, the juries in general will do the right thing. They may make a mistake. The problem is that most people not being enormously courageous and not having infinite resources to defend themselves legally, um, that kind of law will have a very serious inhibiting effect, I believe, but on what people are, uh, are prepared to do. The notion that it's up to community standards and it's up to the jury, uh, yeah, they, will, they can write some standards into the bill, but in practice, I think it would have a very negative effect on people's willingness to uh, take some chances, including on what's pornography, uh, because what does or doesn't have literary merit, I never liked that decision of the Supreme Court in terms of uh, of, of we're deciding, well, you can read that, that's okay, but you can't read that. We don't, we don't think that's literarily meritorious enough. Um, the fact is that the uh, community standards and, and what has been considered literature have changed over the years, and things that are now considered literature were once overwhelmingly considered not to have any, any merit. And, and, and a judge in New York recently held that uh, 
our community standards in Manhattan are so low that by definition nothing can be obscene there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a lot of things I've recently seen on television and heard that appalled me, but I'll limit my comments or my requests for anybody on a panel or all to two things. Tom Sherwood would asked about the naming of the young defendants in the rape case. Uh, said he didn't feel that there was any obligation to do any more investigation because he had a right under the law because they were charged as adults before revealing their name. I personally find that appalling that he has a right, therefore he has no responsibilities. The second thing was on Nightline, some, and I have to use the word twit, stood up there and he was practically bragging that because of our coverage and showing the starvation in Somalia, we got the government to go in because of our coverage showing the bodies dragged through, we got them go out. What he was saying was the press was deliberately affecting public policy by what it showed as news. Now, if they want to use news as newsatorial, as an editorial which is covering for news, it should be labeled as such, I think. I think it's appalling to think that the media has the arrogance to think it has the right to set policy by what it shows on TV. Ms. Stoll, do you want to respond to that? Well, I don't know who the twit was, and I don't know <laughs> what his role was in the news decision chain. That was ABC, after all. He was, was a producer in Los Angeles who was fired well, for but, his but, violence. But I don't think that when you talk about showing uh, a scene that's taking place in a hard news kind of situation, as what was going on in Somalia, that most of the people making the decisions would be thinking in editorial terms. Uh, they're really thinking about uh, getting the story as accurately as they can, putting it in context, getting it on the air that night. Those are uh, so imminent kind of uh, events that are taking place that you just have to put into the news gathering daily uh, news operation judgment calls. I doubt that anybody in that kind of uh, fast-breaking news situations thinking along those lines. Uh, what you're saying surprises me. I don't think you'd hear it out of uh, many people I know making decisions where I've worked. Now, afterward, I can see people saying, yes, that influenced policy, but I don't think it went into the decision to put it on the air and not put it on the air. I, I'm, I'm disturbed by the, the question suggesting that the press or any other individual, whatever their private means, somehow is acting improperly by trying in whatever way they have to influence government uh, policy. That's the whole, that's what we mean by governed by the consent of the governed. If they want to try to influence it through news programs, through writing, you write columns and you don't include everything under the sun. You write newspaper columns because you hope to influence government policy too. Um, and uh, these are private uh, outfits operating privately. I, I would think it appalling. Uh, if they decided, well, we'll just be neutral actors and view everything as agnostics, we would hope that they would have views. Well, if we're adult uh, uh, viewers, we can decide for ourselves with access to countless other sources of information, whether we agree with what's uh, being portrayed justifies policy X or Y. Yeah, well, the, only, the only problem is you don't really have access to lots of different uh, ideas, uh, uh, especially on television. I mean, you really don't have that access, and uh, what you have is something that also happens sometimes in uh, even editorial houses, where, or whatever, where where somebody has uh, done shot this and somebody has edited it someplace, 
and, and is choosing selection. I mean, it's something that somebody talked yeah. about a, a while ago. Yeah. There's always a matter of selection, what you select. And um, I mean, wh wh when, you're, when you're finally printing it or, or whatever it is, and, uh, uh, and, um, and uh, whoever, whoever is, has shot it, who has ever taken it, you know, has, has, has been thinking also of what the boss will like. Um, you know, there isn't, um, but you know, there isn't that, said, uh, th there isn't that freedom. I mean, it isn't. Uh, you said that you don't get the variety of views, and that is probably very true on the news broadcast. But if you look at all the news shows that one network or all of them together put on, you're going to get all the views. You're going to get the talk shows. You're going to get the Sunday morning interview shows. You're going to get McNeil Lira every night. So if you really are watching television and want opinion, you're going to be able to find and it. And if you read the newspapers. I mean, I, I think it is probably the case that America would be better governed if the electronic media had not got greatly into the news business. But um, it's a fact of life, nobody's doing anything about it, and I am often appalled. And um, I mean, I, my advice to you is don't watch it. Um, that's, uh, if you don't like it, there's nothing anybody else can do about it. Um, the other thing, though, is that let's not leave out of blame here the public. And I think, you know, I don't know what TV news people, I don't mean to say this in denigration of TV news, there are inherent limits in the media, uh, in the medium. I don't know any TV news person who fails to read newspapers. The TV news people are themselves very well informed by, by reading in addition to the TV. And any citizen who only watches, because if you think about it, in a, in a half hour broadcast, just inevitably most of us can't talk as fast as people can read, um, you're just not going to get that kind of information. So citizens who choose not to read anything and only watch a half hour or an hour of news a day, They've decided to limit themselves and anything I can do about it. Finally, there are alternatives, though, even on television. I mean, in addition to all these things, you do have C-SPAN. And there, I mean, C-SPAN goes into mind-numbing detail on subjects <laughs> of, of uh, a wide variety of uh, ranges of importance. And if you really want to, you can. But mainly, you ought to read about it. Uh, and and I, I would disagree that TV was purposive. I think they have some effects I don't like sometimes. But I do not think there is a group of people there saying, let's manipulate it this way, let's manipulate it that way. You may have a random effect you don't like, but I don't think it's anything purposive. Well, again, many thanks to the panelists, to the audience, and we look forward to joining you at the reception. Thank you.